You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Our tonight's reading comes from Exodus 3, reading from verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jephro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of the fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go up and I will see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the, be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought this people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then sh what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to, your, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I have promised to bring you up out of the misery of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites and the Jebusites a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take three days' journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all of the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, 
and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Good afternoon, DPC. Uh, please keep your Bible open, and don't forget the passage and the outlines also on the welcome card. As we come to think about Exodus 3, let's pray and ask God to be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this chapter in the Bible, and we pray that you would help us to understand more about your holiness. Amen. Does God's holiness ever challenge you? I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, do you sometimes find that God's holiness creates barriers or problems or issues for you? Perhaps it would help if I actually defined what I mean by holiness. In the Bible, God says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. God's actually talking about his uniqueness there, his separateness, his transcendence. You know, there are two categories. There's the category of creator and the category of creation. And God is in the creator category and everything and everyone else is in the creation category. God is different to us. He is separate. He is unique. His holiness is about his otherness. But it's also about his perfections. Listen to a song that Moses sang in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. You can see it in the welcome card. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. This speaks of his moral perfections, his righteousness, his flawlessness. For God to be holy, it means that he is separate, but also he is perfect. And so let me ask you again, does God's holiness ever challenge you? you know, does he feel distant? You know, he's just so great and vast and amazing. And you just kind of wonder, why would he ever be bothered with someone as small and insignificant as you? Why would he listen to your prayers? Do you ever feel threatened by his holiness? You know, he's just so good and you feel that you're not good and you're not good enough for him. You know, why would he ever love someone like you? And let me just say, if you've never felt this way, then perhaps it's because you've never really truly understood God's holiness. There are many times in my life where I feel that I'm doing really well uh, and then I hear a sermon or I read a certain passage and I'm just blown away again by God's transcendent, perfect holiness. And it reminds me of how small and weak I am and it just brings me to my knees. God's holiness can feel like a challenge to us because it reminds us of just how different we are to him and how flawed we are. But it shouldn't lead us to despair. Instead, God's holiness is a wonderful truth that actually makes our life better. We should rejoice in it and give thanks for it. It's the reason that we can be confident that God will work in our lives for our good. I want to show you today from Exodus 3 that the very reason God is able to help his people is because he is holy. We're going to learn this by seeing how Moses himself began to understand this amazing truth. Uh, I read out from a song that he sang at the end of his life, but we're going to rewind now 40 years 
and see how it is that he first began to grapple with the truth of God's holiness. So let's turn to Exodus 3, where we're going to see that Moses encounters the holy God. Now, 40 years after fleeing from Egypt, Moses is now a shepherd, tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. And if you're paying attention, you might know in the last chapter that he was introduced to us as Ruel. Uh, it's the same guy. He's just got two names. Anyway, Moses is in the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. And that's between uh, Egypt and Canaan. And he's moving west in the direction of the land of Egypt. And he comes to Mount Horeb. And interestingly, in verse 1, it's described as the mountain of God. This is probably a reference to the future significance of this place. And I'll explain why later on. And while Moses is there, his eye is caught by a strange sight. He sees there's a bush that's on fire, but the bush is not being burned up. This is the first indicator that Moses is about to encounter the holy God. Do you notice that in verse 2 it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire. But all that Moses seems to see is the fire itself. You know, there's no kind of angelic figure, no humanoid outline that he can see. No, the flames themselves are the manifestation of the angel of the Lord. In fact, this angel or messenger is so closely identified with God that we could say that the Lord himself has come down to earth and is in the midst of this bush. In both verses 2 and 3, we're told that the bush is not burning up. Now, everyone knows that fire needs fuel to burn, and so it would seem that these flames clearly have a supernatural source. Now, it's possible that this miracle is a preview of what's going to happen later on in Egypt when God's going to again suspend the natural order of events as he performs his mighty deeds. But I also think there's, there's more to it than that. You know, this is not God just acting at a distance in the world. Rather, God is present in this bush in a mysterious way. And thus, the fire tells us something about God himself. Just like these flames are independent of the world, so too God is independent of the world. He's, he's not sustained or upheld by any created object. Yet he can also appear in the human world so that he can be seen and heard. Now, God is separate to the physical world, but he's not cut off from the physical world. This is a truly awe-inspiring and fear-inspiring sight. It's awesome and fearsome in the older sense of those words. And so Mo Moses is drawn in by curiosity, but he's in for a shock. In verse 4, God calls out to him saying, Moses, Moses. And Moses almost casually says, here I am. But then God reveals just exactly who it is that Moses is speaking to. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. I'll read them out for us. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, do you notice that 
God doesn't say, take off your sandals and then you can come closer. No, he says, stop, don't come any closer and take your sandals off. Moses is on holy ground. And so taking his shoes off is a sign of respect or reverence that's still practiced today by many cultures. And the ground is holy because God is present there. And so Moses can't come any closer. If he was to walk up to the bush and to to reach out, he would be destroyed by God's holiness. Well, once Moses takes all of this in, he realizes he's in trouble. His curiosity has turned to fear as it's dawned on him that he's in the presence of the holy God himself, the God who is separate and perfect. This is almost like someone just kind of accidentally bursting into the king's throne room, joking and mucking around, and they see the king there on his throne. You would turn to fear. Moses is challenged by God's holiness. But what's about to happen next will forever change this exiled shepherd. You can see on your outline that the holy God vows to act through Moses. We first learn that God knows what is going on with his chosen people in Egypt. Uh, He has seen, he has heard, and he is concerned. This is not a, a distant, uncaring God. This is not a superior being who's detached from human suffering. No, he sees all, he hears all, and he knows all. And this should actually bring comfort to his people today. Because he knows, he sees, he hears. But also this truth is a warning to those who would rebel against him and think they can get away with it. Well, next God says what he has done and what he will do in response to his observations. Have a look at verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. God has personally come down. Now, of course, God is everywhere all at once. Uh, And so he's present throughout the whole world all the time, sustaining it. And so for God to come down, it's not really talking about a change in location. It's actually about an expression of his intention to act. And what will he do? Well, he's going to bring his people up from one land and take them, deliver them to another land. And this is actually the next part of God's big plan for the world. As Aaron has reminded us over the last couple of weeks, God made a covenant, a promise with Abraham and said that through him, all nations on earth would be blessed. And one part of that plan was that he'd have a big family that would become a nation. At the end of Exodus chapter one, we've we've seen that's come about. The Israelites have multiplied. Another part of the plan, though, was that they would have a promised land that they would dwell in. And from there, uh, the blessings would go out through the world. And so that first part has occurred, but now we see they need a land. God is going to keep his promise and take them there. Well, having perhaps calmed down a bit from his fear, Moses is probably thinking, this all sounds pretty good. It's fantastic. God's going to be acting in the world to carry out his plan. But then God says something shocking in verse 10. Have a look. 
So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, the Holy God has revealed his plan to Moses. And now he says to Moses that he will be the one through whom God will enact this plan. This actually sounds like a pretty big job, doesn't it? And so Moses is going to need a little bit more from God. You'll see the next point on our outline says this. Moses objects, so God responds by pointing to his own holiness. Now, from this point on through to chapter 4, verse 17, Moses lists a bunch of objections about why he shouldn't be the man to do this job. And God patiently answers his objections. Uh, We're just going to look at two of them today, and next week Aaron will look at the rest. And so you'll see that Moses asks two questions in verses 11 through to 15. And the first is this, who am I? Have a look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, we might expect God to answer by saying, well, you know, Moses, you're raised in Egypt. You're well equipped. And yes, you did have to flee Egypt, but I've sorted that all out. But, but no, God doesn't actually talk about who Moses is. He actually responds to this objection in an unexpected way. Have a look at verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. I mean, God is saying, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is that I will be with you. And God promises a sign that they will return to this very mountain and they will worship God together. This is why Horeb is a significant place. You may have actually heard it referred to by its other name, Mount Sinai. Yes, Moses is right now in the very place that the Israelites gathered together. They worshipped God. God was there in the clouds with thunder and lightning. Uh, They entered into a covenant with God as a nation. Moses went up onto the mountain and came down with the Ten Commandments. This is a very special place. This is the mountain of God. And so God is reassuring Moses that he'll reveal his holiness through his acts of redemption. And so the people will gather here in the future and out of awe and reverence for the holy God, they will worship. They will worship the God who has redeemed them. So that's the answer to who who am I? Uh, God just says to Moses, well, I'll be with you. So then Moses is seeking clarification. He says, well, then who are you? That's the second question. Now, it's hard to properly understand exactly what question Moses is asking here, why he's asking it. So let's just have a look at verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, the question might imply that Moses has no idea what God's personal name is. And he's worried that the Israelites might quiz him to see if he's legit or not. Now, that might be the case, but then God probably wouldn't have gone through this long uh, explanation about his name. It's much more likely that Moses wants to understand the meaning of God's name. 
You know, it's not asking about labels or, or kind of what, what do we identify God with. He's actually asking about his identity. Who is God? This is actually common ancient thinking. You know, names reveal something about a person. And to know someone's name is to open up the possibility for a relationship. We've already seen in Exodus that there are two babies who've been born, Moses and Gershom, and we're explained what their names mean. And so now we're getting the explanation of another name. Have a look at verse 14. Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So it seems at first that God hasn't actually answered Moses' question. He says, uh, I am who I am, which could almost be like saying, what does it matter what my name is? I'm me. But then he wants Moses to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So could it be that he actually is revealing his name? Well, God is giving Moses the information that he needs to understand God's name. He starts with the verb to be. It's an essential verb in any language. And in English, we find it in various forms like I am, I will be, I was, they were. In Hebrew, it's, it's a bit trickier because often we need to look at the context of where the verb appears to properly understand uh, its tense. And so it could be that God is saying, I am who I am. Uh, but you'll see there's a footnote in your Bible that indicates it could also be something like, I will be who I will be. Uh, perhaps we could even translate it as, I've always been whom I have always been. In other words, this is a timeless statement about God's existence. He's not defined by anyone else other than himself. He's not defined as a child or a parent or a neighbor or a servant of anyone. He is self-defined. He is self-existent. Now, some people argue that God's name has just been revealed. His name is I am. But I actually think that he's setting up for the name to be revealed in verse 15. Check it out. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, ja God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, do you see that word Lord in capitals? That's where we see God's name. But the Hebrew behind this word actually needs a bit of explaining and, and maybe you've heard some of this explanation before but i think it's worth spending some time on it now the word is most likely another form of the verb to be uh, the english translation actually indicates this because i am and the lord are both in small caps there are related words uh, the first the former one is the first person form of the verb i am uh, while the latter is probably the third person form of the verb. In other words, it could be something like, he will be, or he is. This is why God first explains his identity. And I also believe it's part of the reason why he appears to Moses in the flames burning in the bush. God is revealing that his name itself points to his self-existence. And also perhaps contains a promise to be present with his people. 
After all, even back in verse 12, uh, God says, I will be with you. He's using that I am verb. So it could almost be, I am is with you. But still, why does the word appear as the Lord in our Bibles? Well, I'm glad that you asked, and I've got some slides that I've prepared to show you. Uh, in Hebrew, God's name here is spelled out by the four Hebrew letters, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, which we can depict with the English letters Y-H-W-H. Now, in ancient Hebrew, there were no vowels written down, and so people just had to know how to pronounce words. They kind of had to learn it. Now, if you think it's crazy to communicate with consonants and no vowels, well, then just look at the text messages of anyone under 30 years old. I mean, my daughter Charlotte seems to write in code and she just drops vowels all over the place. Now, another piece of the puzzle is that the Jews wanted to revere the name of God. And so whenever they saw it appear in the written scriptures, rather than articulating that name, they would instead say the word Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. Uh, the next part of the story is that many centuries later, some clever Jews came up with a system of dots and squiggles to write around the consonants in the Hebrew manuscripts as a way of putting in the vowels and showing people how to pronounce different words. Now, whenever those scribes saw the consonants of God's name, they actually added in the vowels of Adonai. So that meant that people were meant to say the Lord rather than saying God's name and potentially misspeaking or blaspheming the name, perhaps. And so it's because of the mashup of these two words uh, that when you actually look at the Hebrew, it's, it could look like we're meant to say Jehovah. That's why you may have heard that name. Uh, but it's almost certain that that was not the actual name. Uh, scholars think maybe we're meant to pronounce it as Yahweh. But ultimately, we just don't know. And so our English translations have kept the tradition of the Jews by printing Lord and doing it in small caps. So we know that's actually God's personal name. So sometimes I find it helpful when I'm reading through a Bible passage to maybe insert a name in my own mind as I'm reading whenever I see the word the Lord to help me remind myself that this is not God's title. This is his personal name. So, why is all of this relevant? Why would I go into all these details? Well, I actually think that God's name points to his holiness. It's speaking about how he is, he will be. It shows that he is separate and other. He is self-existent and self-defined. He's not defined by any object or any creature, anything, which means he's actually free from this world. And so he can freely act in this world. Moses is taking a crash course in the holiness of God, which demonstrates why God is able to redeem his people from Egypt. And this leads to our next point on the outline. The Lord will reveal his holiness to all the peoples in Egypt. You know, it's interesting that in verse 15, God connects his name uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs of the Israelite nation. And this is a further way of revealing who he is. Uh, he is a God who keeps his promises. 
And so from generation to generation, they'll remember this name because of the redemption that he will accomplish in Egypt. In verse 16, Moses is told again to go. He's to go to the Israelites and tell them that God has not forgotten his promises and that he'll redeem them from their slavery in Egypt. Now, we don't need to go over the de- all the details found in verses 16 to 22, but I do want to draw your attention to verse 20. God informs Moses that Pharaoh won't listen to him, but then says this. Have a look at verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God will reveal his holiness to all the peoples in Egypt, Egyptians and Israelites alike. He will show through his mighty deeds that he is powerful and mighty and he's not constrained by the physical world. No mere man can stand in his way, not even the mighty Pharaoh. And God will also show that he is just and righteous. He will expose the sinfulness of people. He'll punish those who reject him. In fact, even the Israelites, his own people, will be at the risk of his holiness, at the risk of his holiness consuming them, which is why they need to observe the Passover, so that the blood of the lambs will cover their sins. God's holiness is awesome and fearsome, but for his people it is a wonderful blessing and the source of their hope. But it still presents a a challenge for us, doesn't it? Moses was told, come no closer. And we often see in the Old Testament that people uh, wrongly get too close to the holy God and they are struck down. And so this brings us back to where we started. Does God's holiness ever challenge you? You know, it definitely is a help. But see, it's our our own unholiness that's a problem and that creates a great challenge. Well, thankfully, God has resolved this by sending his own son into the world. Jesus Christ has overcome the greatest challenge for us, and it's because he himself is holy. So let's apply the lessons that we've learned in Exodus 3 today. And we're going to see that the holiness of Jesus is good news for us. You know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been presented with lots of challenges. And one of the greatest challenges is that we've had to keep ourselves separate from other people. We've had to create these special zones in our homes and in our workplaces, in public spaces that people are not allowed to enter. A bit like God to Moses, we've had to say to people, do not come any closer. And this is because physical contact could be dangerous. It could even be life-threatening. That's what God's holiness is like. If we come too close to him in our unholy state, his holiness will destroy us. You know, he's forced to eradicate impurities from his presence because otherwise he would not be the pure and holy God. Now, this might sound a bit like God is unloving. He's horrible. But he actually doesn't leave it there. Now, he shows his love for us in sending Jesus, the one who can help us. 
In fact, the reason Jesus can help us is because he himself is holy. If you've got a Bible handy, you might like to flip forward to Mark chapter 1. Uh, it's quite a big flip, I know. We're in the second book of the Old Testament. Now I want you to go to the second book of the New Testament. In Mark chapter 1, we, we read that on one Sabbath, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, and a man jumps up and starts screaming at him. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 23, you'll see that this man is possessed by an impure spirit. That's another way of saying an unholy spirit. An evil spirit is inside of this man. And in verse 24, he cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This unholy, evil spirit knows that Jesus is God's agent on the earth. He is the one who's going to bring the holiness of God to the mortal world. And this unholy creature knows that it spells doom for all who are impure. Well, Jesus casts out the spirit from this man, leaving the people in awe of his authority. This is a demonstration that Jesus truly is the Holy One who will cast out all unholiness. And as we read through the rest of Mark's account of Jesus' ministry, uh, we learn that Jesus truly was holy. Uh, and we see again and again that he was perfect, particularly morally perfect. And in his transfiguration uh, on the mountain, we witness his holy separateness. You know, just like the burning bush, he shone forth with a self-sustaining radiance which pointed to his eternal, self-existent nature. Jesus is holy in his transcendent glory and he is holy in his moral perfections. And, you know, we, we may not like these ideas because it kind of makes Jesus feel a bit distant from us. You know, he's not just one of the guys. But it's actually because of this holiness that he can truly help us. So he's not limited or restricted in any way. And that means he makes us holy so that we can draw near to God. You know, the gap between humans and God is so great that we just can't bridge it. You know, no amount of sacrificial living, spiritual activity or good deeds will make us holy enough to come into the presence of the holy God. And so what are unholy humans like us to do? Well, first of all, just like God came down to Mount Horeb, so too Jesus, the Son of God, has come down to rescue. If you're still in Mark chapter 1, you might like to look further down the chapter and we see that Jesus encounters another man, another man with a holiness problem. This man has leprosy. Can you see that in verse 40? This man uh, draws near to Jesus and asks if he will make him clean. It's kind of like this poor man is suffering from COVID-19. And so his friends and family would have been ex uh, practicing extreme social distancing. Because see, they don't want to contract his disease. And, and worse than that, because he's declared to be unclean, impure, in an unholy state, he can't draw near to God. He can't go to the temple to worship. And so here is a man who was cut off due to his holiness problem. And in verse 41, 
Jesus crosses that divide because he reaches out and he touches this man. This man has possibly not had any human contact for, for months or even years. Jesus bridges, crosses that divide, and he also cleanses him. He doesn't just heal him. He makes him ritually pure. And he tells him to go off to, to a priest and to offer the sacrifice as a way of confirming, yes, God has cleansed him, and now he can engage in worship again. Well, Jesus does the same for all who will come to him in faith. He will make them holy so they can draw near to the holy God. And he does this by taking our unholiness, our uncleanness, our, our leprosy, our sin, our shame, our guilt upon himself. And he takes all those things to the cross and he destroys them in his own death. You know, God may feel distant because of his holy otherness. But he comes near to us in Christ. And God may feel threatening because of his holy perfections. But Jesus has dealt with this, not by lowering God's holiness, not diminishing it, not lowering God's standards, but rather he lifts us up to God's level. We are now viewed as holy in the eyes of God. And so we're in effect welcomed into his isolation bubble, onto his holy ground, and there is no risk to our life. And so the final way that the holiness of Jesus is good news for us is that he helps us to grow in living out our holiness. This is a tricky question that Christians often grapple with. You know, we've been declared holy by God. We are holy in his sight. We can be in his presence, but we know that we're not perfect yet. And so we actually need to live out our holy status by growing in actual holiness. And so Jesus, he grows us in our moral perfections. He teaches us through the Bible. He sends the Holy Spirit. That's right, the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. So that God is always with us and he's shaping us to be more like his holy self. Jesus also helps us to live at our holiness by driving us to worship God. Yeah, the more we learn about Jesus, the, more, uh, the closer we draw near to him, the more we will see the holiness of God and it will leave us in awe. Rather than trying to diminish God, you know, to make him an object that we can analyze or a being that we don't feel uh, intimidated by, we need to admit that God is transcendent in his glory and we need to fall on our knees and praise our creator, praise our redeemer out of reverent fear. You know, God's holiness is not a challenge to those who are part of his people. Not because his holiness doesn't matter anymore, but because Jesus has dealt with the problem of our unholiness. If through faith in what Jesus has done for us in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, we can see that God's holiness is of great benefit to us even today. It gives us hope that we can change. It gives us hope for the future. And so... When you're faced with your own, fear, uh, your own failings, your own fears, when you feel overwhelmed by the struggles of this life, when you feel that you're not good enough for God, remember 
that the transcendent and perfect God has drawn near to you in Jesus to call you to himself. And he will bring you safely through this life into the next. You just hold on to Jesus in faith. Our holy God is the Lord. He will do it. And so keep trusting in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are in awe of you for your majestic glory and your holy, perfect righteousness. Help us to not diminish your holiness in any way. Help us to marvel at it, to know that it is awesome and fearsome. And may this turn our hearts to praise you and to give thanks for Jesus who has made us holy so that we can be in your presence. We look forward to the day when that will uh, be experienced by us in fullness, when we will be fully known by you and we will fully know you as much as we can in our limited state. And we pray that you would perfect us day by day, making us more like Jesus, the Holy One who has redeemed us. And so please help us to press on in faith every day, uh, glorifying you. Amen.